Section 35 of Uther and Egrain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Uther and Egrain by Warwick Deeping. Book 4, Chapter 2. I would have you know, madam, that every woman is pleasing to man, saving his own wife. Who in turn is pleasing to his friend, even if he chanced to be a king. The woman on the couch tossed her slipper from her small foot and struck a series of snapping cords from the guitar that she held in her bosom. There was a certain rich insolence in her look, a sensuous wickedness that was wholly poetic. The man bent forward from his stool, lifted the slipper, and kissed the foot whence it had fallen. He won a smile from the face bowered up in cushions, a smile like sunlight on a brazen mirror, brilliant, clear, metallic. There was a fine flush on her face, and the star on her bosom rose and fell as her breathing seemed to quicken and deepen for the moment. Her fingers plucked waywardly at the strings as she looked out from the window towards the sea. I love life, she said. Surely. The pomp, the pride, the glory of being great. I have a future for you. A kind of spiritual echo burnt in the man's eyes. And my wife? Oh, you are still something of a madman. So you say. I? Indeed. He bent forward with a sudden eruption of passion and kissed her foot again till she drew it away under the folds of her dress. Ah, you are a little mad, she said, turning and smiling at him with her quick eyes. Bide so, my dear lord. I can suffer it. And yet? I hate her. I hate her. I hate her. Bah! She cannot harm you. I hate her for being a martyr, for being strong, for thinking herself a saint. How I could scratch her proud big face. She humiliates me because of her misery, because she is contented to suffer. It is impossible to trample such a woman underfoot. The man gave a queer laugh. You are still envious. I? Envious? I? Because she is never humbled, never asks mercy. Curse her! Let her die. Come and fan me. I am sleepy. On the southern side of the central tower, between it and the state quarters of the castle, lay the garrison of Tintagel. It was a lustrous nook, barriered by gray walls, sheltered from the sea wind, and open to the full stare of the sun. Somber cypresses lifted their spires above flower beds, mosaiced red, gold, and blue. 
The paths were tiled with colored stones and bordered with helichrys. In the center of all, a pool glimmered from a square of bright green grass. The window in the tower that had so seized upon the lad Jehan's heart looked out upon this square of color that shone beneath the extreme blue of the summer sky. The casement was an open mirab, whence tragedy could look out upon the world. The glory of the sea, the sky, the cliffs, contrasted with the twilight tint of the prison room. Galaris's wife sat in the window seat and watched the waves and the horizon with vacant eyes. She was clad in a tattered gown of gray. Her hair had been shorn close, leaving but a golden aureole over neck, ears, and forehead. One hand was wrapped in a blood-stained cloth, and there were marks left by a whip upon her face. Her gown reached hardly to her ankles, showing bare feet and wheels where the scourge had been. She was very frail, very worn, very spiritual. Her face was the face of one who looks into the solemn sadness of the past. Her lips were pressed together as in pain, and a certain divine despair dwelt in her deep eyes like light reflecting some twilight pool. The muscles stood limbed in her neck like cords, and the fingers of one hand were hooked in the neckband of her gown. Many days had passed since the life in Garlot's Valley. They had taught Egrain the deeds that might result from the stirring of the passions of such a man as Gorlois. It was a strenuous age, and men's souls were cast in large mold either to the image of good or evil. Even Boethius could not escape the malice of a great king. Attila had scourged the nations with a scourge of steel. Old things were passing amid disruption and despair. Gorlois had caught the titanic, violent spirit of the age. His personality had won a lurid emphasis from tragedies that shook the world. Egrain had suffered many things. Shame, torture, famine. Since she had fallen again into his power, the man had showed no pity only a fine fecundity in his devices for the breaking of her spirit. He could be barbarous as any hun, and though she had guessed his fiber, it was not till these latter days that she learnt to know him more fully to her own distress. It was not the physical alone that oppressed her. Galois had imagination, ingenuity. He made her moral sufferings keener than the lash, and subordinated the flesh to the spirit. Egrain withstood him through it all. She felt in her heart that she was going to die. As she sat at the window, the sound of laughter came up suddenly from the garden, glowing in the sunlight. Mere mockery might have been its inspiration. So light, so merry, and so mellow was it. Egrain heard it and leaned forward over the sill to gain a broader view of the tiled walks and flower beds below. She saw a woman dart out of a doorway in the wall opposite and run in a very dainty fashion, holding her skirts gathered in one hand 
the other flourishing a posy of red roses. As she ran, she laughed with an unrestrained extravagance that had in it something sensual and alluring. Igrain watched her with a badge of color in her cheeks. The woman in the garden was clad in a tunic of sky-blue silk that ran down her body like flowing water. The tunic was cut low at the neck so as to show her white breast, whereon shone a little cross of gold. Her hair shimmered loose about her in the sunlight like an amber veil. Her lips were tinctured with vermilion, her face seemed white as apple blossom, and shadows had been painted under her lids. She moved with a graceful, sinuous air, her blue gown rippling about her, her small feet, slippered with silver embroidery, flashing glibly over the stones. A man was following her among the cypresses, and Agrain saw that it was Galois, sunburnt and strong, with ruddy arms and the strenuous zest of manhood. There was something unpleasing in the muscular movement of his mood. He was Grecian and antique, a Mars striding with the red face of no godly love, sheer bovine vigor in the curves of his strong throat. Ekrein saw the woman run round the garden, laughing as she went, her hair blowing behind her in the sunlight. She turned up the central path that led to the pool with its little lawn closed by a balustrade of carved stone. Morgane La Blanche stood by the water and watched Galois abjuring the paths and striding towards her, knee-deep in blue and purple. He leapt the balustrade and stood looking at the woman laughing at him through her hair. The red roses were thrust into Galois's face as he came to closer quarters. There was a short scuffle before the girl abandoned herself to him with a kind of sensuous languor. Igrain saw her body wrapped up in the man's brown arms. It was a minute or more before the two became aware of the face at the window overhead. Igrain found them staring up at her. Galois's swarthy face close to the woman's light aureole of hair as she stood buttressed against his broad chest. By instinct, Igrain drew back into the room, till pride conquered this shrinking impulse. She leaned forward upon her hands and stared down at the two, allegorical as truth shaming falsehood. The woman, meanwhile, had drawn aside from Galois's arms. She was pulling the roses to pieces and scattering the red petals on the water, and there was a peevish sneer upon her lips. Ever this white death, she said. Igrain saw the impatient gesturing of Morgan's hands, the tap of the embroidered slipper on the grass. The woman's words seemed to trouble Galois. He stood aside and did not look at her, even when she edged away, watching him over her shoulder. It was a conflict of dishonorable sensations. Morgan jerked a quick look from her large blue eyes at the window overhead. There was nothing but rampant egotism upon her face, and it was evident that she trusted on Galois to follow her. He was staring swarthily into the water as though he watched the fish moving in the shallow basin. 
He hardly heeded Morgan as she picked up her pride and left him. Other thoughts seemed to have strong hold upon his mind, and he stood at gaze till the blue gown disappeared under the arch of the door it had so lately quitted. Galois leant against the balustrade and pulled his mustachios. His eyes had no very spiritual look, and his red lower lip drooped like an unfurled scroll. More than once he cast a quick, restless glance at the window in the tower. Irresolution seemed to run largely through his mood, and it was some while before he gathered his manhood and passed up an avenue of cypresses towards the tower. At the foot of the stairway he stood pulling his lip and staring at the stones, oppressed by a certain dubiousness of thought. Climbing the stairs, he found the woman Malmain in an alcove asleep on a settle. Her head had fallen back against the wall. Her mouth was agape, and she was snoring with her black hair tumbled over her face. Galorius woke her with his foot. The woman started up with the growl of a watchdog, stared, and stood silent. Galois, curt as a man, burdened with a purpose, spoke few words to her. She opened a door by a certain mechanical catch, went in, and closed it after her. Half an hour passed. The door rolled again on its hinges. Malmain came out and stood before Galois on the threshold. She was breathing hard, and sweat stood on her face. Galois gave her a look and a word, passed in, and slammed the door after him. Malmain sat down on the settle, wiped her face, and listened. For a minute or more she heard nothing. An indefinite sound broke the silence, like the moving of branches in a wind at night. There was a sound of hard breathing and the creaking of wood. Something clattered to the floor. God judge between you and me. The voice was half stifled as with the choking bitterness of great shame. Malmain grinned in her corner and leant her head against the door to listen the better. What of God? said the man's voice with a certain hot scorn. What is God? Take your knife and end it. Madam wife, there is good in you yet. There was silence again, like a lull betwixt ecstasies of rain. Presently, the woman's voice was heard, low, sullen, shamed. Man, man, let me die. Own me, master. You, you, how can I lie in my throat? Is truth so new a thing? You have taught me to love death. Malmain heard Gualoris's hand upon the door. She opened it forthwith. He came out upon the threshold. His hands were trembling, and his face seemed dull, his eyes passionless. I shall tame you yet, he said. You can kill me, came the retort from the room. This is the end of Book 4, Chapter 2, recorded by Laurie Nadeau Richardson, www.
www.loririchardson.com.